Our scripture reading this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 1. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you have refused to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is good. We thank you that it is true. God, help us this morning as we study Proverbs to hear the wisdom that only you provide. Jesus, if any of us is in sin, might you reveal that to us and graciously draw us to reproof and correction. But God, more than anything, may we see you as the chief prize and treasure of life. Be with us in this time, Lord, as we study your word together. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Thank you for being here this morning um, and braving the torrential rains that we are receiving right now. Um, so um, for those of you guys that haven't been here over the course of the summer, this might be your first week. Um, we appreciate you guys being here this morning. Uh, this summer, we've been going through a psalm one week and a proverb the next week, and, and there's some reasons why. Um, I, I told you guys one of the first weeks we started doing this uh, that we wanted to take some time this summer and really hit home uh, these two ideas that we think are critical to uh, a vibrant and growing walk with Jesus. And, and that's this idea uh, of this pattern kind of uh, seeking of worship of the Lord and seeking his wisdom and what he has for us. And so um, I, I said that first week that psalms are, are by design, uh, songs that will incline um, our heart to a position of, po- uh, of worship or a posture of worship to remember the faithfulness of God and in seeing that faithfulness, worshiping him. And then in the Proverbs, we said that Proverbs is designed uh, by the, the primary author, Solomon, uh, to, to dispense God's wisdom 
to his people. And I said in that first week, that a disclaimer for that is that you won't automatically be a genius if you've read the, the book of Proverbs, but that, that Proverbs is more so designed to give us a, a, a glimpse at what uh, wisdom looks like in the midst of folly. And so we will hopefully together as a church body learn, grow, and apply the wisdom of God uh, in our lives throughout our time in Proverbs. And so last time I taught through Proverbs chapter one, the first seven verses was about a month ago. And we saw a number of different things when we studied uh, those seven verses. Uh, we we kind of first and foremost defined what a proverb was. And we said that a proverb was a saying or teaching that taught us the difference between foolishness and wisdom. And so that proverbs in some sense are designed for us to take these kind of tangible truths about the universe and more specifically about God and his wisdom um, and then compare or contrast it versus human wisdom or the human definition of what might be wise. And, and so now we made an important distinguishing uh, characteristic that morning, though, when we were studying that, because we said, look, Proverbs are sayings that are general promises about God and who he is, but they're not absolute truths. And and one of the things I did to prove that was I I took us to Proverbs 22, where it talks about uh, raise your children up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, and they will not depart from it. And one of the things that frequently happens is Sometimes we can read Proverbs, and we think if we follow them perfectly, everything will go perfectly according to plan if we do exactly what they tell us to do. And so what happens is, is you have parents that will say, oh, I'm going to raise my kid up and train them up in the Word and, and teach them about God and about the gospel and about what Jesus has done. And then what, what can end up happening is that child may spend a season— Right where they hit their teenage years and you see rebellion and a walking away from the Lord. You say, well, wait a minute, Proverbs is a bunch of baloney. It's all lies. And what we need to understand is that when Proverbs was written, Solomon is sharing these, these particular truths with his son, trying to help us understand that if we follow these guiding principles, generally this is how things are going to go. But it's no guarantee of these things. So as we define Proverbs, we also saw in those first seven verses that Solomon, the author's purpose, was to pour wisdom out into his son. He wanted his son to avoid the mistakes that he had made as a king and learn from a lifetime of gathering wisdom from God as he had ruled as king of Israel. And we saw that in these first five verses, Solomon puts out the purpose of writing this entire book in the first place, right? And he says this, to know wisdom and instruction. That that's kind of the the purpose of the book. And we said that there was a difference between this idea of knowledge and instruction or knowledge and wisdom. And knowledge is a correct understanding of the world and our relation to God. But wisdom is this Hebrew word, chakma, right? And for those of you guys that actually know Hebrew, you know that my pronunciation of Hebrew is terrible, right? But this idea of wisdom is skill in living. So it's taking that knowledge that, that you may have and actually applying that knowledge to your life. So if, if you are here this morning and you want to be striving towards wisdom, we saw that the place to start was verse 7 of Proverbs chapter 1. 
where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and and instruction. And we said that if you want to go through life, right, with wisdom, pursuing what God would have for you, to know what you should be doing, that the starting point or the source of that wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And and I made sure that as we processed through that, that we had a proper understanding of what that word fear meant. Fear in Scripture is a good thing that we have turned into being a bad thing. right? But if you think about it, it is right to fear certain things. right? It's right to fear fear the power of a tornado, or is right for me to instill into my children a fear of walking into oncoming traffic. Those are healthy fears to have because if we tend to do those things, and I, I just saw an article a couple of weeks ago that I thought at first was um, a satire article, but it was actually a real thing, that uh, government officials in Kansas were warning people not to go out with their guns and shoot at tornadoes. Can't make this stuff up. This is a real news article, right? And they had this guy sitting out there. He had two semi-automatic weapons just standing there in his front yard, with, and you could see a tornado off in the distance, right? right? If that tornado were to change directions and come at him, right, he would be in trouble very, very quickly, and guns aren't going to help you in that situation, right? A healthy fear of things that are worthy of fear and respect is a good thing. And what we need to understand is that when Scripture talks about a fear of the Lord, it's not talking about a sense where we're scared all the time to, to see God's presence or to, to, to be around God. No, what, he's ta- what Scripture is talking about is this idea of reverence and understanding the majesty, glory, and power of a sovereign and holy God. And that if God wanted to, at the snap of a finger, right, could do whatever he wanted to us and yet chooses to love and pursue and come after us. And so a fear of the Lord is understanding God's power and place in the universe and yet understanding that what he desires from us is living unto him for his glory and reverencing, giving him the fear and reverence, not fear in the sense of I'm scared to be around you. And so this starting point is where we've launched at saying, hey, if we're going to pursue wisdom, if we want to live lives that make sense in the midst of the chaos around us, in the midst of crazy work environments, in the, in the midst of crazy political environments, in the midst of interpersonal relationships where you think you're doing well with friends or coworkers or neighbors or boyfriends or girlfriends or husbands and wives or kids, right? What does God have to say about seeking after him in the midst of all this. Wisdom is not a few handy tips for living or information for higher performance in life. No, wisdom is a matter of life and death because it centers around, will I seek what God wants of me or will I go my own way? If we want wisdom, we start with God. So here's what I think we're going to see this morning as we continue to to process through uh, the end of Proverbs chapter 1. The starting point is verse 7. 
right? Knowing that wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord and knowing that without him, we don't know true wisdom because he is the author and designer of all that we see and experience. But we will also see that wisdom, which is ultimately rooted in God himself, is concerned with calling people to itself. Let me repeat that. That wisdom, ultimately, the Lord, right, is calling out to us to pursue him and to pursue right living in his eyes. Let me, let me word that another way, right? What God wants for you and I is to stop robbing ourselves of joy and living for ourselves, but to live unto him. Right, that true wisdom, rightful living, is not the absence of joy, but it's the presence of God and seeing him at work in our lives. And so we're going to see three things in these verses this morning. Right, the first one is this, that wisdom calls out to those who lack understanding. The second thing we'll see is that wisdom is not passive, but is actually dangerous. And I'll explain that more because I'm getting some looks like, what, huh? Right, but we'll see what the scripture says there. And then the last thing we'll see is this, that wisdom rooted in God is our only hope. Right, so turn over to verse 20 with me in Proverbs chapter 1. And I want to read the first two verses there. It says, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. And so in those first two verses, what you see is this. Wisdom calls out to those who lack understanding. Look at what Solomon says wisdom is doing here in these verses. It's crying aloud in the street. It says that she, it raises her voice. You notice there that it personifies wisdom? That wisdom is not just this, this uh, idea out in the clouds, but that Solomon per- personifies it. And I would say to, specifically to the men in the room, look at who, what kind of gender they gave wisdom. It's not male, it's female. So if you're married in here, listen to your wife. She's probably smarter than you, right? But that wisdom personified has her, right, speaking out Right, crying out amongst the streets. It says that she cries out even in the noisy streets, that she speaks at the entrance of the city gates. And, and so the question then is, it must come to us, right, is why, why is wisdom doing this? Right? If Solomon is saying, hey, fear of, the, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, why is wisdom crying out to us? Shouldn't we be running out to seek it? Shouldn't, shouldn't the human race be like turning over stones and diving into books and doing whatever it can to seek true wisdom? And yet Solomon says true wisdom is out in the midst of busy city life, standing at the city gates, screaming at people, please listen to me, with this idea that what? People are just passing by and doing what? Ignoring her. See, what Solomon wants us to see is that we as humans lack the wisdom to actually know how life should work. And yet God in his mercy screams out to us, cries out to us, look, here's what you need. And we scoff and walk by it. 
that we see it screaming in the city streets, that we see it at the entrance of the city gates. And even though we have information, we lack wisdom to apply that information. Let me give you an example. Because I think that one of the things that's come out of the Enlightenment, right, is that the human race has gathered more and more information over the course of the last 400, 500, 600 years as, as a human race, especially in the West. And as we've gained more and more knowledge, we've become so much smarter in so many ways and yet so dumb in so many others, right? Like the biggest enemy to many of the issues facing us is us. And here's how I know. How many of you guys have ever seen a monarch butterfly? Yeah, most of the room. They're beautiful, right? I used to love, like, as a kid uh, growing up in Virginia, we would see them at at various times of the year before they would do their their big migration. And what has happened since about the mid-90s is the population of monarch butterflies has been reduced by about 96%. It's a lot, in case you don't know simple math. It's a lot of butterflies that don't exist today that existed about two decades ago. Now, there's a number of different theories on why this is happening, right? And we've got scientists and uh, anthropologists, that specifically like ones that study bugs, not humans, right? But we've got different people that will study this stuff, and here's what they've come to discover. That the primary reason why a lot of these monarch butterflies are disappearing is twofold. Right, they said, okay, well, first and foremost, there were a series of bad winters that came back to back to back, and then climate change on top of that is contributing to the reduction in numbers of these monarch butterflies. And they discovered this about 2004, 2005. And so scientists said, okay, but we, as human beings, have the wisdom and the knowledge to, to change the tide of what's happening here. Because the other thing they found, and this was the primary source of what was killing monarch butterflies, is that farmers were using uh, a weed killer on their crops. And the primary cr- thing that monarch butterflies use to feed and then subsequently lay their eggs is on a weed called milkweed. And so if you're using Roundup, on weeds, guess what's happening to the food supply for these monarch butterflies? It's disappearing, all right? So the scientists are like, well, we probably can't tell these farmers to get rid of the, the pesticides and the weed killers that they're using. So here's what we'll do. We'll start planting our own milkweed and we'll have milkweed farms so that these monarch butterflies will have places where they can mate and lay their eggs and subsequently have food. Sounds like a good idea, right? We've identified the problem. We'll create a solution, right? Human beings are great, except they forgot one small piece. There, there are different species of milkweed on our planet. And guess which one they planted? The wrong one. Not the wrong one in the sense that the monarch butterflies wouldn't come to it. As a matter of fact, they planted one that was a tropical species and therefore wouldn't die during the winter. So guess what was happening? The monarch butterflies would come. They would come to the milkweed. They would lay their eggs. They'd stick around. They'd lay more eggs. And guess what happened? Because the plant didn't die off, parasites started living on that plant because they're like, hey, there's a bunch of larvae here that I could eat. Meaning 
because they planted the wrong type of milkweed, they invited parasites into the life cycle of the monarch butterflies, therefore killing off even more of them the next season. This is what I mean when I say a lot of times human beings know a lot of information, but we lack wisdom. We have all this information about things, and yet as we attempt to even try to do good, we lack the wisdom and the why we would be doing what we're doing in the first place to see the full impact of what we may or may not be doing. And so in an attempt to save monarch butterflies, conservationists actually killed off even more of them. And here's what Solomon is trying to get across to us in these first two verses here in verse 20 and 21. Human beings are not the source of wisdom, but God who is the source of that wisdom in the universe is crying out to us. And if you've ever spent any time in the Bible consistently studying it, here's what you'll notice. That's actually a consistent theme throughout Scripture. Human beings get themselves into a bind and God pursues them anyway. Right? Think back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. God creates the heavens and the earth places Adam and Eve in the garden. They walk with him. They're led astray in Genesis 3, and they sin against God. And what do they immediately do? They run and hide. And yet, what does God do? Adam, where are you? He pursues Adam and Eve. He finds them. He comes after them. Think about moving forward, right, into the book of Exodus. God pursues his people and uses Moses to liberate them. Think for it after that as they're in, they finally have arrived in the land that God has promised. And what does the nation of Israel do? They turn from God. And so what does God do? He sends judges to them over and over and over again to call them to repentance and wisdom and upright living. Then as they ask for a king and God says, you don't need a king. God is your king. And they say, no, we need a king like the other nations. God provides a king for them. And as he provides a king for them, the king's continue to be bad and worse and the people tend to go astray and what does God do in his mercy and his love he still pursues his people and he sends prophets to warn them of the coming exile and that God will eventually restore his people see God pursues his people over and over again until in the full culmination of God's pursuit of mankind he sends Jesus to call us to repent and believe in him as the promised Messiah who would restore all things to himself. See, the constant message in Scripture over and over again is that men and women deny the wisdom of God and yet God pursues them anyway. And here in Proverbs chapter 1, The manifest wisdom of God is available to those that lack understanding, and it calls for us to come and listen. Listen to his word and listen to Jesus. Wisdom calls out to those who lack understanding because God, the God of wisdom, pursues you and I. And as God does this pursuit, we see here that wisdom is available, but it's only found in him. 
Now, what's interesting is what we continue to see in, in Proverbs chapter 1, though, is that as wisdom calls out to us, it demands a response. And what we're going to see is that many of us think no response means we're just waiting around, but that God is saying no response is still a response. Right? Look at verses 22 through 31. We're going to kind of work through these verse by verse. Right? But what we're going to see in these verse, um, verses is that wisdom is not passive, but dangerous. And what I mean by that is wisdom demands we follow and listen, that we listen to the voice of God and respond to him. And to not respond to him is dangerous. Right? Look at what he says in verse 22. He says, how long, O simple ones, you know, great language that you just love being called a simpleton, right? Will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge, right? As God speaks out, as as manifest wisdom personified, as God speaks out, he says, how long will you be simple? How long will you scoff at my calling out to you? How long will you hate knowledge? Here's the rhetorical question that God asks as he cries out amongst the people in the city. How is ignoring my wisdom working out for you? How's it going? Honestly, if you sit in your chair this morning and you think, I'm living my own way, you know, God's a part of my life, maybe I go to him for some things here and there, but I'm not allowing the wisdom of God to penetrate every area of my life where I live, where I interact with my coworkers, my neighbors, my classmates, uh, my family. How is that working out for you overall? Like genuine question as you sit there and reflect is how is that working out? The, the idea of what God is pouring out here through Solomon as he cries this out is I know how it's working out for you because I can see it and guess what? It's not going great. And then look at what he says in verse 23. He's like, look, I gave you guys a chance. He said, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Do you see what God is saying to us there? It's like, look, the opportunities to respond to me over the generations, over the last couple thousand years, have been there time and time and time again. If we will simply turn to him, he will correct things. Ray Ortland Uh, A pastor up in Nashville, Tennessee says it this way. He says, God is saying to us, sometimes I will disagree with you, but I work with responsive people. Meaning God's not looking for perfect performance based upon his standards. He's looking people that will repent and turn and respond to him. Wisdom is seeing where you don't line up with God's design and not demanding perfection of yourself, but responding to him time and time again, turning to him. Responding to God is not stubborn. Turning is a decisive word where you say, God, I have gone my own way, fix me and renew me. Now, the sad thing is, is the response to that call in verse 23 is, I think, the response I see of myself and so many others around me. You know, God calls 
those of us that don't pursue him in wisdom, simple and scoffers. And look how the scoffers respond in verse 24. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. There's this consistent response, right? God calls, we refuse to listen. God calls, no one heeds. God calls, we ignore his counsel. God calls, we would have none of his reproof. This, this is consistent ignorance from myself as a human. Consistent ignorance, right? And you notice like what's interesting about the language there? Right? It doesn't say there's flat-out rejection. It just says we ignore it. Right? The word I would use for that is complacency. There's not a flat-out rejection of God's wisdom. We just don't take heed of it. We listen to it and we're like, eh. Uh, eh did, I didn't, is that really what God means? Eh, not right now. And the danger of complacency just because we aren't actively fighting against God's will, just ignoring it, doesn't mean that it's not creating huge issues for us. Guys, I, w- I would say this. The biggest a- issue facing the church in the West is not atheism or agnosticism. It's agnosticism mixed with complacency. And I see it in two different areas. I see it in people that don't know God and don't care to think about the possibility of God because they can't see any impact God might have on their lives. But the even bigger issue is complacent Christians. People like me who know God's word, who knows what it demands of us and asks of us, and then care to not respond to it. who care to not take God at his word. There's going to be an entire generation of people who don't know of God's love for them in Christ because people like me were too complacent to say something. To talk about the wisdom that God has given me in my own life, the way he's changed me, the way he's drastically changed the trajectory of my life that was heading towards a life of self-destruction and now is moving in a direction towards a, a life worth living and a love worth giving to others. And in that complacency, God is not passive towards it. Look at what he says in verse 26. Then they will call upon me, but what? I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of whose way? Their way. 
and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have the fill of their own devices. That's where I want to stop right now. Wisdom, wisdom, right? The wisdom of the Lord God looks upon his people who are complacent, who refuse to respond, and he says, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes like a storm. You will call on me and I will give no answer. You will seek me diligently and you will not find me. Guys, let me, let me explain something about what God is saying here in these verses. The ultimate terror of life is not to face suffering. It's not to face discipline or reproof from God. The ultimate terror you and I can experience in this lifetime is God gives us over to ourselves. The worst thing that could possibly happen to you as a human being is that God says, fine, you want to do it your own way? Go ahead. Go for it. See how that works out for you. Right? If you go to Romans chapter 1, right, Paul says this exact same thing. In Romans chapter 1, when you get to verse 24, right, he's just got done talking about how, how men have rejected the truth of God for the lie and they've worshipped creation rather than creator. And look what he says. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, create, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Doesn't say God punishes them. Doesn't say God smites them. Doesn't say God brings some sort of calamity on them. What does God do in the midst of man's rebellion to following him and seeing him as the source of wisdom? He gives them over to themselves. Because here's what God knows about you and I. We're the authors of our own demise. Right? Uh, Pastor Matt Chandler out in Village, Texas has had a line for probably going on a decade that I still love to use. And it's this. No one robs you of more joy than yourself. That the greatest enemy of you is you. And he's not talking about some, uh, you know, 10-step program to uh, smarter psychology so you can have more self-esteem. He means that you and I, in our sinfulness and our brokenness, consistently, in an attempt to give ourselves more comfort and a better life now, instead rob ourselves of joy. The ultimate sign of God's wrath is, is not discipline or correction. It is when God gives us over to our own foolishness. And when we reject God and his wisdom, we receive our own terror. And it is dangerous. And so we see Solomon saying here, like, look, look, God is calling out to us. Read his word. See his actions. See what he has done for his people time and time again. But if you reject that, it is dangerous. Some of you may be sitting there thinking like, whoa, this is, sounds scary, Kevin. I came to church to hear an uplifting message, not some message that tears me down. But here's the reality. Without knowing the true state of our own souls and our own wickedness, we can't see the true beauty of what God is doing. 
And the true beauty of God is this. He is calling out. And as he turns us over to ourselves, we're left with a state of terror. But if we look at verses 32 and 33 of Proverbs 1, what we see is in God, if we turn, he is our only hope for security and safety. Notice the difference between those that heed God's call of wisdom versus those that choose their own way in these verses. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency, there's that word, of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. He says there in verse 32 that those that choose their own way are simple and killed by their turning away and the complacency of their foolishness destroys them. I mean, think about that. Complacency kills. Meaning, meaning, if there is no response, guess what complacency is going to cause you to do? If you're not responding to God and you're complacent, guess what you're doing? The same thing over and over again. My, my grandfather used to have this saying with me. My grandfather spent a lot of time with me over the summers, and he had all these like, little, wise little, like, almost like proverb-like sayings. Right? But one famous one, he would, he would look at me and smile when we would go fishing. As I was trying, because he was teaching me how to bait a hook myself, right? And it wouldn't work. And guess what I would do? I'd try the exact same thing again, and it wouldn't work. And I'd do it again, whatever else. And finally, he, he'd just look at me, and he goes, only a fool does the same thing more than once. And what he meant by that is if something in life is not working, doing the same thing in life over and over again is not going to change things. Right? I saw this on full display in my own life when I was in college. Right? As I sought after my own way of bringing meaning and value and validation to my life, I did the same three or four things over and over again. I drank, I partied, I tried to sleep around, and I tried to do as little work as possible. And after a year or so of doing that, I kind of like did some personal inventory, and I'm like, yeah, I don't really feel that satisfied with life. Like, nothing really seems to be happening here. Like, this kind of stinks. I guess I'll try it again for another year, but in a new location. Tried it in a new location. Guess what? Yielded the same results. So I'm heading into my third year of college. I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm going to try this, but with a different set of friends. Guess what that yielded? The same results. Because the reality was, is that in the folly of my way, the problem wasn't the environment, the problem wasn't the people around me. Guess who the problem was? Me. The problem was, is that I was seeking after wisdom and validation in life from my own definition and my own meaning instead of the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. Only a fool does the same thing over and over again and expects a different outcome. Those who listen to wisdom, that know that God and fear of the Lord is the source of knowledge and wisdom, though, he says this, whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Guys, here's why the call 
to respond to wisdom. Ultimately, the call to respond to God and live underneath him is so important. You are faced in life with two choices. It's a major life moment for some of you young people. You really have two choices in life. Respond to God or trust in yourself. That's it. Those are the two choices that life puts in front of you. Respond to God, respond to his design, respond to his wisdom, or trust in yourself. And let me, let me just share something with you guys. Most people who choose to trust in themselves are educated, smart, uh, business people, not extreme risk takers. And so from, out, from the outside looking in at them, we say, oh yeah, they, I mean, they've got things together. And yet they give into this idea of complacency that, that wisdom denounces here in Proverbs 1. They're complacent in their own knowledge and wisdom. And I love this line from Ray Ortland about complacency. Complacency is counterfeit ease. Notice what he says, if those who listen to God's wisdom will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread or disaster, but those that don't pursue counterfeit ease. Hear me when I say this. Have you ever noticed that we as human beings tend to replace the longings that God designed in us with counterfeits? Think, just pause on that for a second. Think about what you really long for as a human being. Think about what you really want out of life. And then think about how you pursue those longings. You ever notice that we tend to replace those longings with counterfeits that never truly satisfy? Let me give you some examples. God designed us as human beings to long for intimacy. It's a good thing. God designed us for that. But ultimately, the place we're supposed to find that intimacy is with him. And in being known by him. The way that Adam and Eve were known by him and then started to hide in shame from him. But God designed us to need him. Right? As C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, that we're like a, a, a car or an automobile engine that runs on gasoline. And that gasoline is God himself. And if you try to put something else in the engine, it won't run properly. And yet, when we long for intimacy... We look for it in other places. And so, you know, we, we pervert this in so many different ways. Sex outside of marriage, right? Intimacy with people that aren't going to return that same love and respect in return. God designed us for relationships. He designed us to long to be in community, both with him and his sons and daughters. God designed us for that. And so we look for community, right? A good thing that God designed us for, we look for it, but we end up looking for it all in the wrong places. And think about your relationships. The number one thing I have to counsel people on is toxic relationships. 
The number of times I have to sit down with somebody as a pastor and help them work through interpersonal conflict with someone else because they've either become codependent or someone in that relationship has become codependent or they've been hurt so many different times by somebody in relationships that they become avoidant and don't want to be in relationships, right? We take this longing and this love for community and we turn it upside down because ultimately we long to be in fellowship and relationship with God and instead we give that authority to someone who doesn't deserve it. I think about something even as simple as when God placed Adam in the garden. He said, rule and have dominion over all things in this garden as I would. Meaning that you and I, as human beings, were designed to lead and to rule and to do so with grace and wisdom and respect and knowledge And yet most people, if they're ever in a position of leadership, they rule with an iron fist or they fear the role and don't trust themselves and so they become passive and never lead. Because we replace these longings that God placed in us with the things of this world. As Paul says in Romans, we worship the creature rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. And the ultimate counterfeit is that we took our longing for God and worship of him and we replaced it with men. That we've taken God off of the throne of our lives and we've placed ourselves there instead. And this is, this is what I love about the human race, right? And my wife and I, we, we, we laugh about this because I'm a, I'm a big history buff, and so I love history, and Jackie's like, who needs history? I'm always like, well, you know, those that tend to not learn history tend to do the same things over and over again. But the amusing thing about that statement, anybody ever heard that statement, those that don't learn history are doomed to repeat it? Here's the thing, though. We learn history, and we still repeat it. That's the one thing your history teacher doesn't teach you, right? Because you wouldn't ever listen to anything they had to say. But it's not as if over the course of the last couple hundred years, we haven't been studying our own human history. And guess what? We do the same thing all over again. We might find a different way to express it, but we do the same thing over and over again. Because the ultimate counterfeit is that we've removed the wisdom of God from our lives and we've placed ourselves there again and we think if we can just get the right person in charge, the right politician, the right political group, the right business, the right people in the right places, we'll finally have it figured out and we'll stop messing this thing up. And every society and every culture since Adam has failed to do it. Because the only place it rests is in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. And so we sit in our folly and we bring our own destruction. And yet scripture provides great hope. I love how consistently throughout the word of God, I can read all these terrible things, destruction, famine, right, folly, complacency, ignorance, foolishness. You can read these things over and over again. 
And yet God consistently puts this clause in there. But. But God. And in verse 33, but whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Guys, here is the gospel. That in our own foolishness, as wisdom called to us in creation, as wisdom called to us in the word of God to repent and turn to him, we complacently turn to ourselves for that wisdom instead. We look to ourselves for the answer to the problems that we created. And the reality is, is the Bible promises one of two things. In the midst of that destruction, right, two things can happen to us. We can either continue to be complacent and foolish, and we will reap what we sow, which Solomon promises is terror. The terror of our own demise and destruction because God will turn us over and give us over to it. The other thing we can do is this. We can listen. And we can do what God asks us to do all the way back in verse 23 and turn at at his reproof. And if we listen to the wisdom of God, And if we turn, and if we respond, here is the promise of Scripture. You and I have reaped and sown destruction, but if we turn to the wisdom of God, God put Jesus in our place, and Jesus reaped our destruction for us. That you and I in our sinfulness have turned from God and reaped our own demise. And yet Jesus went to the cross in our place to reap our destruction. To reap what we had sown. And in that place, Jesus took what he had reaped and sown and he gives it to you and I freely. Which is the grace and mercy of God to be adopted as his sons and his daughters. Those are your options. There are no others. The options are to respond to the manifest wisdom of God, which finds its full culmination in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We can continue to go our own way and reap destruction. in a moment we're going to invite the band back up to sing and worship and and during this time we take communion at Aletheia and every and every week as we take communion I usually try to remind you guys to do one of two things right the first is before you come up here and take a of the bread and the juice that you would sit in your seat and you would just ask God this is there anything going on in my life right now where I am seeking the wisdom of man instead of your wisdom. And in doing that, I'm sinning against you. Please reveal my sin to me. And then would you do this? Would you turn? Would you turn? And turn starts with just making a turn in your mind. God, you're right. I'm wrong. Change me. Help me to follow you.
And I love the language that he uses here in Proverbs because that, that idea of turning is a, a moment in time decision, but then it's a continual action after that. It's a daily dying to self and surrendering to God's proper authority in our lives. And so before you take communion, would you do that? Sit there, reflect, repent, turn to God. And then would you come up here and would you take communion? And here's what communion represents. That the perfect son of God poured out his flesh and blood for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might be reconciled to God and his wisdom. And when you take communion, you don't do it um, solemnly in tears, but you do so joyfully because Jesus willingly gave himself up for you. To use the language there in Proverbs 1, he willingly submitted himself to what you sowed. He willingly reaped your destruction so that you might be forgiven and experience the love and wisdom that only comes from God. And if you do this, you won't have your best life now. There's no promise of abundant riches. There's no promise of a perfect life without suffering. But here's the promise, that you will dwell securely with him. People that have been Christians for a long time know what that means. It means when the storms of life hit, when suffering comes, there's a peace that Paul talks about in Philippians that goes beyond all understanding. It's the peace that comes from knowing him as God, King, and Sovereign over all things. But it only comes through Jesus. Submit to him, turn to him, not just as a one-time event, not just as an altar call when you were at age six or at summer camp or whatever it may be. Daily submit and turn to him. Let's do that together in prayer. Father, I ask that we would know you and your wisdom. the wisdom that only comes from you, from knowing and walking with you. Heavenly Father, reveal to us the folly of our ways. Reveal to us the wickedness of our complacency. Father, grant us repentance so that we might turn to you that we would turn to Jesus who has reaped our destruction and in him given us life Lord help us to see when we're relying on the wisdom of men instead of the wisdom of you and your word and forgive us when we do so Lord make us wise so that we might honor you and bring glory to your name. And in you that we might dwell securely 
with ease.